glorious grace. Amen? And, and so I think it's important that we as a church, when we sing a song, we have an aim. And so, John, show, show us what this song is going to say in the chorus. Let's say it together. Let the glory of your name be the passion of the church. Let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns. Let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives. We believe you're all to us. Are you ready to say that this morning, church? Let's stand together and sing. Precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful. Precious cornerstone, precious cornerstone, sure foundation, you are faithful to the end. We are waiting on you, Jesus. We believe your of your name and let the glory of your name be the passion of the church let the righteousness of God be a holy flame that burns let the saving love of Christ be the measure of our lives we Saving love of Christ be the measure of our life. 
certainly all to us. Amen. Hey, I'm going to put a young man on the spot because we're just so glad he's here. Joel Hayworth, come up and lead us in prayer, young man, would you please? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are thankful to have the opportunity that many people around our world today do not have. The opportunity to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ to proclaim that you are all to us, Father. Thank you for that privilege that we have. Do not let us take that lightly. We pray for Pastor Philip as he's preparing to get up here and share your word. Give him the words that you would have him say. And Father, help us to leave this time changed with a better understanding of who you are and share the gospel in a world that is lost and that needs to know your truth. It's in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Pray for Joel's church, Morgan Baptist Church, up around Conway. Uh, they had to suspend uh, today because a couple of uh, COVID cases in their midst. Uh, Joel was unaffected, by the way, so feel free to be around him. And um, so, But praise the Lord, that allowed him to be with us today, so we just... Give, give God the glory for that and, and pray for his flock that they uh, are, do well this week and they can meet next week. Hey, uh, if you would please uh, take this uh, uh, connection card and fill that out. It's our way of getting to know who you are if you're a first or second time guest and, and fill that out. Please put it in the offering plate as you leave today. For the rest of us, you can put a prayer request down there. Uh, any other information you want us to know, you put it down there and we'll uh, process that, receive that. We'll certainly definitely be sure and pray for those prayer requests, and we promise you that. And so please do that and put those in the offering plates as you, as you leave. Hey, let's sing together this uh, great, great Fanny Crosby song that reminds us again of the glory of God. To God be the glory. Great 
continue to give him the glory, great things he has done, namely, the great gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus. Amen. The grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from the raging sea and I am safe on the solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. I will not fear when darkness falls. His strength will help me scale these walls. I'll see the dawn of the rising sun. The Lord is my Oh uh-huh. 
Oh, thank you, Father, for such a marvelous gift. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Um, it's our time where we have a season of prayer. Um, today, we will dedicate this prayer time uh, to Tuesday. All right. Obviously, the nation is making a monumental decision for our next four years. One of the voices that, that I've come to trust over the past 40 years as we were raising our family uh, is the voice of Dr. James Dobson. Uh, he 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 had the he had a firm grasp of scripture in one hand and a firm grasp of the Christian family in the other, and he put the two together so so beautifully over the past fifty years of his ministry. He wrote an open letter to the church, uh, asking us to consider how we are going to vote. Not talking about a candidate, but talking about ideas, talking about platforms. And here's what he has to say. I'm quoting. Well, hello, everyone. I'm James Dobson with the James Dobson Family Institute, and I want to share a few thoughts with you about the upcoming national election. The letter I will read in a moment was distributed to our constituents a few days before President Trump contracted the coronavirus. That was on October the 2nd. He appears to be recovering, and his name will be on the ballot, opposed to that of Vice President Joe Biden. I would not suggest how you should vote in that election. This will be my final letter to 800,000 people before Americans cast their ballots on November 3rd. It is a breathtaking moment in the history of the United States. Many political commentators have stated that this election is the most significant since 1864, when Abraham Lincoln vied for a second term against Democratic nominee George McClellan. The future of our beloved nation hung in the balance that year. If Lincoln had lost, the Civil War would have ended precipitously and the wretched evils of slavery would have remained legal in the Confederate States and perhaps even in the North. Had Lincoln been defeated, the Union would have been torn asunder. Thank God Mr. Lincoln won, even though it cost him his life. Now we're approaching another presidential election that carries enormous implications for the stability of our democratic system of government. Indeed, Newt Gingrich said that what we are now facing might bring an end to civilization as we have known it. He may have been referring to a possible revolution. Regardless, I believe his grave concern for our nation is valid. For centuries, America has stood as a shining light for liberty and freedom. If we abandon our core values, the world will suffer for it. The binary choice before us is that stark. Now, here is the critical question. How will Americans and how will you decide how to vote for our chief executive officer? I've heard from dozens of friends and acquaintances in recent weeks who have told me they will base their decisions solely on the candidate's rhetoric, tone, style, or likability. Does that describe your thinking process? Just now, as I was about to react to that idea, my wife Shirley brought in an email that she had received a few minutes before from a friend. It quoted an anonymous statement that gets to the heart of the issue as follows. 
and I'm quoting, this is not a junior high or high school popularity contest. I'm not voting for the person. I'm voting for the platform. I'm voting for the Second Amendment. I'm voting for the next Supreme Court justice. I'm voting for the Electoral College. I'm voting for the republic in which we live. I'm voting for the police and law and order. I'm voting for the military and the veterans who fought and died for this country. I'm voting for the flag that is often missing from public events. I'm voting for the right to speak my opinion and not be censored for it. I'm voting for secure borders. I'm voting for the right to praise God without fear. I'm voting for every unborn soul that is at risk of being aborted. I'm voting for freedom and the American dream. I'm voting for good against evil. I'm not just voting for one person. I'm voting for the future of my country. I couldn't have said it better, although I want to add to the writer's list. I'm also voting for candidates who will exercise sound judgment internationally. I'm voting for those who will support Israel. I'm voting for those who will protect children from leftist curricula. I'm voting for the nation's fiscal integrity. I'm voting for parental rights. I'm voting for school choice and for home education. I'm voting for freedom in the suburbs. I'm voting for little sisters of the poor and other Christian organizations. I'm voting for racial unity. I'm voting to support in God we trust and school prayer. I'm voting for freedom of conscience for physicians and other professionals. I'm voting for marriage. I'm voting for life in all its dimensions. I'm voting for wisdom in handling the pandemic. I'm voting for protection for the church and oppressive politicians. I'm voting against euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. And yes, I'm voting against socialism. One final thought, and this comes from my heart. With all respect, this election isn't about you. It certainly is not about me. It's about our kids and grandkids. It's about those who are yet to come. If they're allowed to live, this vote has awesome implications for future generations and the nation we love. It is about our Constitution and the immutable God-given rights that it protects. It is about values and truth and greatness and hope. That is why the notion of choosing a president based on frivolous personality characteristics is so unfortunate. In summary, this election is for all the marbles, the presidency, the House of Representatives, the Senate, and the Supreme Court. Together, they set the agenda for our country. If you love America and don't want it to be fundamentally transformed, it is time to do three things. Number one, pray like never before that God will spare this great nation from tyranny and oppression of religious liberty. Two, volunteer to help your candidates. Three, 
Vote for the candidates who will best uphold your values and convictions. Also, you might consider sharing this video with your friends, family, and others whom you might influence. If you would also like to contact me, just go to drjamesdobson.org and God bless America. To buy a grace unsought, my rebel soul was caught, redeemed by love that would not be denied. first time we heard that song, Brother David and my wife, Natalie, and Miss Cammie were gathered around a piano over at Miss, Mr. Tommy and Miss Mary Beth Milligan's, just singing the hymns of the faith. I think Mary Beth had about 25 or 30 pieces of music out there designed for us, and boy, that one just hit us. What a song that is, and I was introduced once again and thought, two times is enough for me to know, Lord, we need to share this with our church body. What a song that is. This text, Ephesians 1, 4 through 13, is a theological 
symphony that is designed to fill your head with truth and to fill your heart with praise. Where are you in this symphony of theological concepts in your thoughts about God in your mind and your affections lifted to praise God? This passage reminds us that God is to be praised for every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. And the very first blessing, the primary verb that moves the text is he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So therein we have the fact of election. He chose us. Subject Verb, direct object. We have the nature of election explained for us here. It is in Christ Jesus. Not something that God saw in you, not something God foresaw in you, but this election was in Christ. Precludes anything you could have ever done on the scene. It was then the time of election, before the very foundation of the world. And then last week we talked about how The purposes of election are explained in this text. And the first one is God chose us to be holy and blameless before him in love. And one thing I want you to take away from that is the fact that if he chose us to make us holy and blameless, it reminds us what we were before we met Christ. You were unholy and you were blameworthy. So here's what you need to know about election. Election assumes your guilt. We're all guilty. Before God. And not only does it assume your guilt. But it assures the very transforming grace of God. To be given to you in order to change your life. Praise God. For a God who would do that. And if you know know your own heart. And the depths of your own depravity. Then you ought to be filled with praise and honor to the Lord God. Who chose you and him before the foundation of the world. Today we take a step into the second purpose. And that's adoption. Many scholars believe that uh, there's an expansion of he chose us together with the word adopt. We certainly could not argue that, could we? Because again, grammatically, the finite verb is he chose. Okay? That's the finite verb which drives the entire entire text. When you get to verse 5, he predestined us is actually an infinitive verb. It is a participial, but it is an infinitive phrase. Okay, It should be read, having predestined us. So we have to let the finite verb drive the text. Y'all like this grammar lesson? As I said to the first group, I didn't know anything about English until I took Greek. And then I found out you had to know English in order to know Greek. So (laughs) crash course, right? We begin to learn these things. So uh, I had a friend and a church member at Cropwell Baptist Church in Pell City, Alabama. He was a full-blooded Egyptian. Uh, He heard the stories. He knew the stories of the Exodus because he lived in Egypt. But the interesting thing about Rami is he would often tell the story about a a friend of his that was a girl who trusted Christ as Savior, and she wrote a book or a pamphlet article called I Call Him Father. And that was... The thing that moved the heart of God, in, that moved her heart toward God, was just the simple understanding that in Christendom, we call him Father. 
That's an unknown thing in the Muslim world. There's no relational aspects of saying, God, you are my father. And so it was that that softened her heart to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because we call him father. And the reason you can call him father today is because of the glorious doctrine of adoption. Okay, listen to the word of the Lord. Let's, for the sake of time, beginning verse 5. Don't miss the forest for the trees and the trees for the forest. We've talked about that. We want to make sure that we keep the big picture ahead of us. But, but we also need to stand beneath these behemoth trees and view them because they're given to us for a purpose. And so, beginning in verse 5, listen to the word of the Lord. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, you may have a translation that starts off, in love he predestined. Again, we, we talked about that last week. Does it end, verse 4, we are chosen in, to be holy and blameless in love, or does it begin, verse 5? I don't know, okay? Grammarians will tell you it could be either one, but I lean toward uh, it is in love that completes the thought of holy and blameless in, in love. However, the ESV starts off, in love. He predestined us for adoption. So here's the point today. I want you to think about God chose us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to do an introductory part of what it means to be adopted. Talk about some of that. And then we're going to look at the fact that adoption is a redemptive term. It has everything to do with your redemption and your salvation. But it's also a legal term. You're giving all the benefits and rights that the Son of God has. They're yours. If he would not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how much more with Jesus Christ will he give us all things? And then it is also relational, right? It is a relational term that he is our Father. Okay, there is a massive elephant in the room on this page. And it jumps right off the pages of Scripture for us, and it is the word predestined. You want to stop a conversation this week? Just throw out the word predestination and you will stop the conversation. This P word with quotes is very scary. Now, most of us would admit, if you know your Bible, that it's in the word of God somewhere, but we just don't want to deal with it. In the Greek alphabet, this comes from the pi word, which is the word P, the letter P, and the word predestination means to determine or decide beforehand. If you want to put the compound word together, it means to predetermine. No amount of lexical gymnastics can move us away from that meaning. It cannot and does not mean anything different. Predestined means to predetermine. In the scriptures, guess what? It's only used of God. Human beings do not have the ability to predestine anything. The word is only used of God. Uh, Lincoln Arnold, who wrote a wonderful commentary on Ephesians in the Zondervan commentary series, says grammatically it should be interpreted contemporaneously with the main verb to choose. And that's why I gave you that lesson of finite versus infinite uh, or, or finite uh, verb that drives the participial phrase. So that is the actions of choosing and predestining 
occur at the same time with no apparent sequence. Now, God is the only one who predestines anything. The word is only used six times in the New Testament. Just six times. Romans 8, 29 and 30. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. Ephesians 1, 5. Ephesians 1, 11, And Acts 4, 28. Again, this word is used exclusively of God. And usually it emphasizes the sole initiative and authority of God in one's salvation. Let me show you a couple of texts just to whet your appetite about what I would call the comprehensive nature of predestination. It is a comprehensive term. Chapter 4 of the book of Acts. I don't see you gleefully skimming through the scripture to find it, but you should. This book is not a picture book. It is a word book. And faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word. So we need to look at the pages of scripture. Chapter 4 of the book of Acts. Comprehensive nature of the word predestination. Listen, or predestined. Verse 27 of Acts 4. For truly in this city, what city are we in? Jerusalem. There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, if you stop and consider the import of this passage, as stated by the early disciples, we quickly realize that he is saying that the treachery of Herod, the cowardness of Pontius Pilate, the cruelty of the Gentiles, the betrayal of Christ by his own people, and all of these did what they did according to whatever his hand purposed and predestined to occur. Mind-boggling. So predestination is unquestionably a biblical doctrine. It's not something that we can just throw off to the side and say it's not in the Bible. I will go one step further. It is a biblical doctrine. Churches should not fight. They should not get angry. They should not split over a word that's in the Bible. Now we may disagree in the semantics. Okay, You may disagree with with, with how I actually preach this, even though I think I'm preaching it squarely with the authority of the Bible, you may actually disagree, and that's your right. We need to love one another, okay? But to say it's not a biblical doctrine is to lie against the word that gives you the actual doctrine, okay? So, it is wrapped up in the idea of God's sovereignty. It's wrapped up in the idea of God's decree. It's wrapped up in the fact of God's eternal purpose and plan, And it's wrapped up in the fact that he providentially works in our lives. He works with human beings. In other words, remember, this is God doing this, okay? Predestination is the most comprehensive word that could ever be contemplated. It's actually summed up for us in Romans chapter 11, uh, verse 36. And the thing is, the word predestination is not even used. The word predestined is not even used in this text uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible is Romans eleven thirty three through 36. But just listen to verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Do you hear how comprehensive that is? When we come to this word, we should not view it with a cold and sterile understanding. 
You should not look at the word predestined and look at it with a cold and sterile uh, philosophy or thinking. And just say, well, everything is just predetermined and that's all that is to it. I think you need to look at the word predestined in relationship to the other attributes of God. Is that fair? Should we not consider that God is all wise? When you think about predestination, does it ever enter into your mind that our God is omniscient? He knows all things. He is omniscient. So when we think about predestined, we need to think about the wisdom of God. Well, what about the will of God? Is that a part of God's attributes? You better believe it. What about the unchangeableness of God? Theologians call this the immutability of God. I am God and I do not change. Jesus said I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. How about the omnipotence of God? Y'all know what that means? That God has all power. When's the last time you read Matthew 28, 19 through 20 and understood that all authority has been given to Jesus? All authority belongs to Jesus. That's that's why salvation works like it does. Because Jesus has all authority. Jesus has all authority. How about the justice of God? Should we think about that when we think about the word predestined? And what about the glorious mercy of God? That he would save anybody. Should we not think about that when we think about the word predestined? So, B.B. Warfield summed it up wisely by saying, The word of God is full of predestination. Because the word of God is full of God. And when we say God, we mean God. God and all that God is. And when we have said God and all that God is, then we have said predestination. Well said by B.B. Warfield. Please note the comprehensive nature of the word predestined as used in this text in Ephesians 1 verse 11. Let your eyes scroll down. If you're back in Ephesians... Always go back to starting place, right? Ephesians 1, some of you are still way over there in Romans or somewhere else. Acts, listen. 1.11 In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works. Is that comprehensive? All things according to the counsel of his will. But in our text, it's narrowed. Predestination is narrowed in verse 5 to what? Adoption. Are y'all with me? That comprehensiveness that reaches the entire world and God, there's nothing that catches them by surprise and God does all things according to the counsel of His will. However, in this text, it is narrowed to an activity with individuals, with me and you, having been adopted into the family of God. Again, This participial phrase, having predestined, is in subjunction, subordination, to he chose. So it can mean that he chose us by predestining us to adoption, or it can mean he chose us in order to predestine us to adoption. I think that we should think about more of the why than the how. I don't think you're ever going to figure out the why. But you you do need to think about Uh, I don't think you're ever going to know the how. How it all transfers out. But you certainly need to hear the why. And according to this text, selection is God's choosing out from among Adam's fallen race those who will be his own. And predestination is establishing the destiny of those whom he has chosen. 
That is clear of the why in this particular text. In other words, the elect become predestined. It is the marking out of what God will do with those who are chosen. There's no other way you can get that text to mean anything else. That's the way that it flows. So if you're a Christian today, then God chose you in order to predestine you to adoption. So here, it becomes individual. It's a a God-designed purpose for adoption. This word adoption is only used by Paul. Isn't that interesting? Some scholars say, well, it's not found in the Old Testament, therefore it's not an Old Testament principle. I'll deal with that in a moment because I disagree. However, Paul is the only one that uses this word adoption. Uh, We might call it a Pauline term. He's the only one that actually uses this word. Now, the translation says adoption as sons. Y'all see that? We're not leaving you ladies out. It's adoption unto, let's coin a new word, sonship and daughtership, right? You are adopted as a son or a daughter. In J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he says, Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Wow. So if we are to understand Christianity, then we must, in some sense, understand adoption. I would certainly say that adoption is the crowning activity of God's redemption of sinners. 1 John 1. 1 John 3, 1. Uh, I have memorized it in the New King James Version, but the smoother reading is found in in the ESV. Listen to chapter 3, verse 1 of John. Do you think John believed in adoption? He didn't use the word adopt, but listen. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. See what kind of love means this is, this is exotic, other world love. God loved us so much that he made us his children. Awesome to think about this. And we do not appear, it does not appear what we shall be, but we know that when we see him, we shall see him as he is. And we will be like him. This is the spirit of adoption. Notice the text is, this adoption is in who? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Folks, everything in this text is Christocentric. It is about Jesus. We might call it the in him formula, but there's no adoption outside of being in Christ. There's no children of God without Jesus, without being chosen in Christ. We are adopted in the Son and thus become sons of God. It's only through Jesus that we can become sons and daughters of God. Have you ever considered... Now think with me. Have you ever considered the fact that it was the Son of God's obedience to the Father's will as a servant that is the grounds of your justification? Had Jesus not become a servant, right? He that knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus did not consider his equality with the Father something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a Some of you read the Bible. He came in the form of a servant. So understand, your justification is due to the obedience of the Son of God as he served the will of the Father. However, Christ's obedience to the Father as a son is the grounds of your adoption. Have you ever considered that? He's a son. The text is going to say next week, he is the beloved Son of God. John Gerardo puts it like this. 
Christ's obedience as a servant entitles us to bow before God's throne. Hallelujah! But Christ's obedience as a son entitles us to sit at God's table. If I could control my own rapture, I would have gone on up. (laughs) Notice this adoption is unto himself. This means relationships, folks. We are elected by God unto God. He takes us into himself, embraces us as part of his family. It's a glorious thing to think that through regeneration, I become a part of the kingdom of God. No man can come into or see the kingdom unless he is born again. How much more glorious is it to know that not only am I in the kingdom of God, but I'm a part of the family of God. He is my father and I am a son. So it is glorious to think of the part that we are part of the kingdom of God due to the new birth. But how much more so when we are part of his family. You are a son and a daughter of God. So in this text we have both the ultimate root of your salvation, which is predestination. And we have the highest end of our salvation, which is adoption. Wow. We have heard much about adoption in our church, haven't we? Every time I mention this word during the week, oh Don, he'd grin like a possum eating briars. Right? Because he's got adopted daughters. We have uh, John and Georgetta who just adopted children. They were their own through their sons. That's okay. They adopted them into their family. Uh, we have uh, Bo and Kathleen seeking to adopt. We, we, we know these things. We watch it from afar and we become part of that. But have you ever stopped and considered the fact that you have been adopted by God? You. Gerardo again says, adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby for the sake of Jesus, he formally translates the regenerate from the family of Satan into his own family and he legally confirms upon them all the rights, all the immunities, and all the privileges of being a child of God. Where would Paul have gotten the idea of adoption? I mentioned earlier, he You don't find it in the Old Testament, not the word. You don't find it in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That is always spelled out with the Roman numeral LXX. If you're reading and you say, what is that? That's called the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Why? So that people can read in Greek and not Hebrew. Y'all with me? So, what what would Paul... Some say, well, he just got it from the Greco-Roman world. And it's true that... They knew more of adoption than the Jews knew because you don't see that in the Jewish world. Others say that the Old Testament knows nothing of adoption. I disagree wholeheartedly. The Bible explicitly says that Israel was the son, adopted son of God. Now, not, not the word adopted, but the word, you are my son. This is said multiple times. How many times do we hear words like, you who were not a people of God have now become the people of God. If you look over in Romans, just flip over a couple of books. It follows Acts. You were just there before. Acts, Romans, right? Verse 9. I'm sorry. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Great to hear the pages turn so you're looking at the Bible. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Wow. My kinsmen according to the flesh. Note verse 4. They are Israelites 
And to them belong the adoption. Uh Uh-oh. The glory. The covenants. The giving of the law. The worship. And the promises. Who's he speaking of? He's speaking of Israel. He's speaking back when they were given the law. He's speaking back to when they saw the glory of God upon Mount Sinai. And the kind of glory of God was there. So the idea of adoption then is closely associated with redemption. Okay? You are my people and I brought you out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand. So in order to be adopted, there has to be the sense of redemption. You're redeemed and you're taking out of and brought in. Hosea talks about this. Come out, uh, you sons of Israel. It, it gives that in chapter 2. So we, we see this in the Bible. Paul's idea of adoption is closely tied to redemption. We would all agree that the idea of adoption was not fully developed in the Old Testament. We would have to wait on the revelation of Christ and the new covenant. But look with me in Romans chapter 8 verse 15. You know these verses. It may be some of your favorite verses. Romans 8. You could have just stayed where you were, right? Romans 8 verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now, what is the contrast with the spirit of adoption? Is it not the spirit of slavery? How do you move from being a slave to a son? Redemption! Amen? So, adoption has to have in it the fact of buying back, of redeeming, of taking in Someone who was not part of the family, we are adopted and taken in. It's not that the spirit of slavery, that's what you were without Christ. What needs to be done in order for you to be moved from slavery into adoption? It's redemption. In order for you to become a son or a daughter of God. Galatians, left corner in your Bible. One page should put you there from Ephesians 1. Chapter 4, verse 4. We're moving rapidly toward Christmas. Can you believe that, that uh, we're almost in December? I'm going to preach on the incarnation on four Sundays. We'll take a break out of Ephesians and we'll be dealing with the Advent candle. And we'll talk about the incarnation of Christ. But listen to this verse. Chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see it all brought together? Adoption. Closely associated with redemption. It is a redemptive term. His adoption of us involves him redeeming us out of the slavery of the bondage of sin. And being taken into the household of God's family. And this text says before the God of eternity entered us. We know what we were. Chapter 2. We were slaves to sin. And the devil. Did you know, folks, that life in the devil's family is nothing but bondage and slavery? God comes and adopts us into his family through glorious redemption. So adoption is a redemptive term. All right, number two, it is a legal term. Adoption from God gives us full rights and full privileges as sons and daughters. The status of sonship is fully and legally given to us. So when you became a Christian, you don't become like a son or a foster son or even an adopted son, you are identified as a son or daughter of the living God. 
It's not like this says, he adopted you, now you're called an adopted daughter. No, adoption is the means by which God made you fully his own. Now we think about, if we go adopt someone, there's one thing we can't do. We can't give them our nature. But God in Christ has given you his very nature. That's who you are. You're a son or daughter. Is not this true in legal adoption today? Adoption is redemptive, but it's also legal. That child in the court of law, when you adopt them, they become your son or daughter. They're entitled to all the benefits and all the affection and all the legal rights of being called a son or a daughter, even though they were not born to you. (sighs) Have you ever been to a court of law and seen this happen? I haven't. But I know what happens. That judge sits behind that bench. And he grants to that son or daughter and to that family legal parenthood and sonship. Right? God sits behind the bench and he legally declares us his children. Just like in the court of law. However, there's one difference. The God of eternity, who is the judge, doesn't stay seated at the bench. He actually gets off the bench And he comes down and he embraces that child or son or daughter into his arms as his own. That's adoption, folks. The judge gets off the bench. Not just announcing something legally, but actually adopting you into his family. Full benefits. He that did not spare his own son. Would he not freely give us all things? To God be the glory. Adoption is also a relational term. It is redemptive, it is legal, it is relational. Once you're adopted, God is your father. Boy, this was big for me when I was 30 and lost my dad on earth. Father to the fatherless. Don't ever underestimate the blessing of calling him father. It is the climactic understanding, in my opinion, of what it means to be saved. He is your father. That's why we start our prayers that way, right? Father. We say that to him. Why? Because it is relational. This entails the spirit of adoption that we read in Romans 8. We've already read it, verse 15, where we cry, Abba, Father. Please consider this relational aspect. At one time in your life, you were ruined, destitute, orphan sinners, and you could give two cents about salvation or the living God. Then God reminds us in this book that you are a child of wrath. You are a child of disobedience. You have gone your own way and you have rebelled against the authority of God. I'll take it one step forward. Jesus reminds us that you are of the seed of the serpent. But through the Son of God, you are now sons and daughters of God. You're not showing any exuberance on the outside. But I sure hope you are on the inside. Right? That you belong to God. Is it any wonder that John exults in God for this privilege? Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. John Murray wrote years ago, Adoption is the apex of redemptive history. Y'all believe that? The apex of redemptive history. Now, we spend a lot of time in our church extolling our God for the doctrine of justification, and rightly so. 
Y'all know what today is? Brother, you know history. Today is All Saints Day. Strategically, you do know why Halloween was invented. It was invented on the eve of All Saints Day to take the glory away from God. So don't take your Halloween stuff too far. Just a reminder. I don't associate October 31st with Halloween. I associate it with the Reformation. Do you know what happened on October 31st, 1517? Martin Luther had enough of people telling him that you had to work your way to heaven because he tried. And he was a Roman Catholic priest. And thus he wrote the 95 Theses and nailed it to the Wittenberg Cathedral. And one of the basically 95 Theses is that you're saved by grace through faith and trusting Jesus Christ only for salvation. Aren't you thankful for those five solas? Brian, our new church custodian, was wearing a shirt around the other day with all the solas. I said, how dare you? Sola Christos and Gratiae and Fide and Scriptura. All of that comes from the Reformation where we believe that you're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that the scripture alone is our source of authority. So we love justification. Got me? We do. To be justified. But check this out. Justification basically addresses your relationship to God in reference to the law of God. In other words, folks, you all remain sinners today. Don't lie. You're a sinner. But God, in spite of your sin, has declared you righteous before his Father. That is justification. In other words... Think about this. He that knew no sin became. Why? Because Jesus Christ himself obeyed the law of God perfectly and never sinned. You could never do that. When it comes to justification, it has to do with the law of God and his perfect law toward us. And Jesus fulfilled that. But I want to remind you as well that regeneration and definitive sanctification, that addresses more of your relationship to sin and being made alive. Okay, that, those are huge terms. Justification, regeneration. What's that mean for God to make you alive? But God, in chapter 2, verse 4. Aren't you thankful for that? But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. And then it starts the set-apart sanctification whereby you're becoming more like Jesus until the day you see him face-to-face. That's, that's awesome stuff. But I want to remind you that adoption addresses our relationship to God as your father. Are you listening? Justification is awesome. But adoption, in my opinion, is even greater. Packer says to be right with God as our judge is a great thing. Justification. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. I'm going to start over. Somebody say amen to the glory of God. That's what we ought to be saying. So, if you are one of his child, children today, then you've been adopted into his family by grace. And when he chose you, it was not some cold, sterile decree. It was the choice of God to make you a child. Wake up! You know, it says it's according to the pleasure of his will. Folks, do y'all know that God delights in saving sinners? Don't you know that he delighted with pleasure and delight to put his love on you and to save you? Don't ever look at this as a sterile, cold doctrine when it involves a father adopting a child. How dare you look at it and say, oh, cold, sterile. No, folks, it means that the God of eternity put his love on you and did it with pleasure. Hallelujah. 
And then the Bible says the will of God. Again, everything falls under subjection to the will of Almighty God. But he does it with pleasure. And he does it for his will. All right, ending this sermon. I can't see. I don't have windshield wipers. And the COVID thing's around. I don't want to run down there and it's not on Brian or anything like that. That's not a good thing. So, chapter 3 of John's epistle. 1 John. Remember, John the Apostle wrote John the Gospel. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation. But here's what he says to us. Is there an alternative today of either being a child of God and a child of the devil or any other alternative? Now, there's only two places to be in this morning. You're either of, you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. Listen to what the word says. Back up to verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Whew, woo, woo, okay. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God. Can we get any clearer? It's evidence who are the children of God and the children of the devil. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is that one who does not love his brother. You know what that means in the Greek as far as uh, tense of the verbs? If you belong to God, then you're going to be an imitator of God. That means when you sin, you are going to confess that sin and get it right. It, it means that you're not going to be in the habitual practice of sin for sure and not repenting and turning back to God. Why? Because God's seed abides in you. Furthermore, if you say you love God and hate your brother, Jesus said this, right? Blessed are those who have not seen me and love me. Uh, just think about that for a moment. So, I want to remind you, though, of the categories here. It doesn't say children of God... Children of the devil and children of good parents. Y'all understand what I'm going on this? There's no other category, folks. So in this auditorium today, we've got two kinds of people. The children of God and the children of the devil. There's no other way to put it. We are either imitators of God through the Lord Jesus Christ and we belong to him. Or we are imitators of the father of all lies, the enemy, who is a murderer from the beginning. If you are not a believer, then I want you to know that you've renounced and left God's authority. If you are not in Christ, then you are a child of wrath and a son of disobedience. But here's the glorious news. Since we were in John, one of his epistles, then flip over to the gospel of John and we're going to finish. John chapter 1. I love these words. John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. John 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Hallelujah. Hmm. You could have walked into this place today a child of the devil. You could have entered this place today as a rebel against the God of eternity and left the Father's house. But I want you to know today that you can leave this place clothed in the righteousness of God in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can belong to God today. 
Mm. Hallelujah. You can change your parents. Eli. No. Not Jim. Not Jennifer. We're talking about being of the father of the devil. You can change your parents by believing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ today. Robed in the righteousness of Christ. That means before the throne of God, you can bow anytime you want to. Unhindered access. But also to call him our father. Relational. Adoption. The devil is a wicked master and a terrible father. I know one who knows you better than you know yourself. And he knows that you were made of dust. But he's still compassionate and merciful upon you. That's the God we serve. Receive Jesus today. Receive the right to be called children of God by faith. To hear those words that you were loved before the foundation of the world, that's an absolutely amazing thing, isn't it? To know that this all comes only through Christ and that he's the one speaking to your heart right now is amazing grace. It's amazing grace. We should all praise him this very day that he has taken us out of the dominion of darkness, translated us into the kingdom of his dear son, to sit at his table. Huh, reminds me of Mephibosheth. Y'all remember him? It was someone of the court of Saul that David could go out and show hesed. That was the word. Loving kindness. What do y'all know about Mephibosheth? He was crippled. Couldn't bring himself to the king. Couldn't do anything. But love from David's heart toward Mephibosheth picked up that cripple and reminded him that you'll have a seat at my table forever. Man, God is good. Let's pray. I love the song Jesus is tenderly calling today. Because that's what you do. You woo our hearts. You put us into the valley of decision. And the Bible expressly says in that valley there's only one way to respond in order to be saved. And that's to accept the grace of Jesus by grace through faith. To repent means that you and your word and your spirit moves us from the place of unbelief to the place of belief. And your word says that on that day, we become your adopted sons and daughters. Or you adopt us into your family as sons and daughters with full legal relational benefits. God, we're so thankful for that. If there's someone in the sound of my voice that is presently a child of the devil, God, you're the only one that can save. You're the only one that can intercept them. You're the only one that can save their souls. Jonah 2.9 says salvation is of the Lord. Jonah knew that only God was merciful enough to save souls. Even the wretched Ninevites. God, no one in this room is outside of the saving ability of Jesus. Father, would you save a soul today if it would please you in your counsel of your will. And God, help us live our lives calling you our Father without hesitation. Working with you in this relationship. Let your salvation work out of you. And then your word says that you are the God and Father who is working in us. Both to do and to will of your good pleasure.
As believers, Lord, help us to submit to our Father, to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. As always, you can uh, come out, and uh, I hope you will. I've lost my sticky note. Oh, here it is. I'd like to speak with you going out if the Lord has convicted you about an area, salvation, whatever that might be. Breaks my heart to tell you this, but Jerry Heimdall died uh, during the night, I guess so. Is that pretty close? I don't think it was this morning, but, but Jerry Heimdall, we love that guy. You remember he just came and rejoined the church for the 25th time. Uh, I joke with him about the fact that he was 100 years old, uh, and every time he moved away for his family, he came back. And I am so thankful to the Lord that God brought him back here before he died. And that the Lord took him on to glory through complications with the COVID-19. Uh, pray for Jerry's family. I want to say thank you for the month of pastor appreciation. Uh, I think Philip Shuford said something one day about pastor appreciation. And I don't know what happened, but you responded. And I want you to know that my wife and I are grateful to you. Uh, cards. To go out to eat, certain things. You know, I usually make my wife pay for stuff like that. But now I can flip out that card. And No, seriously, just thank you so much for thinking of us and caring for us. We have 72 families that have responded to the challenge that I need 100 volunteers. Okay? You know who you are. Next Sunday, it's going to be revealed what you're going to do for your pastor. Well, really for the Lord. Okay? Next Sunday morning. So, I need 28 more families. I told the early service that the second service did much better in this. They only had eight or nine that were willing to trust their pastor. But you had 60-something, and that's, that's a blessing, okay? If the husband or the wife has already signed up, then you're good. Trust me, when you'll find out what it is. You're good. So there's 28 more places to sign up uh, to be a part of this, okay? When we get to 100, we got to cut it off, okay? All right. Y'all good with that? No response? Y'all want me to preach again? <laughs> All right. What time is it? Oh, we did good. We did good. All right. Love each one of you. It's been good to be in the house of the Lord. Pray for the country this week. Amen. I want to remind you of something. If it don't work out like we want it to, God is in control. If we get all hell breaking loose against Christians, then I just want you to remember something. You will not be unlike multiple millions and trillions of people who have lived before you. Okay? So don't hold your head down. Don't crawl into a hole. Don't become an ostrich. Just trust God. We'll be all right. All right? God bless you. Well, with that new understanding of adoption, let's uh, sing together, The Lord is my salvation. Let's stand as we exit. Who is like the Lord our God, strong week.